So I grew my own cannabis at my house. And then they came in and they busted me and they came in without a warrant, forced their way into my house on the day that I was supposed to harvest my plants, mate. I mean, like, fuck, that just... I ask myself, man, what lesson is the universe trying to teach me here? This is Gareth Prince. He is describing a day that would become hugely important, not just for him, but for all cannabis users in South Africa. The day he got arrested for the second time. The case against Gareth Prince ended up in the Constitutional Court and led to the landmark privacy judgment of 2018, legalizing the cultivation, possession and consumption of cannabis by adults in private. But Gareth isn't happy with the judgment. There is still a long way to go until we get rid of the discriminatory laws that ruin millions of lives in this country. Gareth himself is a trained lawyer and a devoted Rastafarian, and because of that, he has never been allowed to practice law. Ironically, though, it is still in court that he has made a name for himself and had a massive impact on the cannabis laws of South Africa. All that and much more in this episode of African Gold. I'm your host, Neil Liddell. I'm particularly interested in speaking to Gareth because, in a way, I now find myself in a similar spot to where he was decades ago. In early 2019, I founded the Hayes Club, a cannabis grow club built on the foundations of the change in legislation that came about after Gareth's long fight with the justice system. But like Gareth, my business was raided and I now have my own date with Lady Justice in the High Court. While waiting for my case to be concluded, I decided to delve into the past, present and future of cannabis on the continent. I have been meeting with some of the leading minds, mavericks and entrepreneurs in the business, and the result is this podcast. On the same day that the coppers came and robbed me, the baboons invaded my house. While the coppers are there, mate, I'm standing there, I'm seeing, is that a fucking baboon that's coming down the stairs there, man? Okay, before I really want to get into that just now, I want to get into uh, your case, the Prince One, Prince Two, mm-hmm. and the judgment and all of that. Um, but maybe let's go back to the beginning. Um, I am personally interested in the the man behind the name. So, who is Gareth Prince? All right, man. I was born fifty two years ago. Okay. Uh, here in Cape Town, my folks are from Neisner, and uh, they went back to Neisner when I was fourteen. So I finished matric. Grew up in Cape Town till about 13, and then from grade 9 till matric, uh, we were in Eisner. Well, I finished my matric in Eisner, okay. and that's where the, the interest in Rastafari got to me. Um, initially through reggae music first, yes. and then through cannabis. Right. I had my first puff when I was 15 years old. Man, I still remember the place where I had my first puff. That's how 
Where was printed it? in Neisner okay. on the farm where we used to stay. And uh, I still remember the spot where we were. You know, everything about that day is just so fresh in my mind, you know, because it was such a momentous occasion for me. Sure. So, man, I've been partaking of the herb for the better part of 36 years. And uh, it's been one of the most joyous and most elevating experiences that I've had in my life. Quite <laughs> frankly. I mean, like, I would not have been the person that I am today if it weren't for cannabis. Okay. So, I mean, like, initially what, what, what drew me to, to the culture was reggae music. Okay. I, I started listening to Peter Tosh and Bob Marley. When I was in grade seven. Right. And uh, you know the, the, the lyrics, the consciousness, obviously being, being an indigenous person in South Africa, a brown or a black person in South Africa, it's like the, the notion of unfair discrimination and inequalities, obviously it features quite a lot in, 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 in our daily existence, you know, and reggae spoke to that. So it is something that I could immediately identify with you know I'm mean, like, sure. as as a person trying to come into himself and trying to assert their own identity what was it like growing up in Neisner at that time um, especially being you know involved in in cannabis and and Rastafarianism were you did you feel persecuted did you feel um, you know that the cops were always out to get you or no not really eh? in Neisner because that time I was at school and throughout, up until matric, I never had any problems with police or none of that actually in Neisner. I mean, us being a small town and we lived quite far from where other black and brown people were staying. I don't know if you're familiar with Neisner. A little bit. Okay, so we, we lived close to the heads. Got you. Right, so yeah. right as you as you take that turn there into Leisure Island, there's a farm on, on this side, that's where we stay. Okay. So we were quite isolated in that sense. Yeah. <laughs> so I never I never had problems with the police and those those folks growing up. And I mean like we, we obviously experienced, you know, the obvious discrimination like when, when we went to the beach, you know, I mean like white people always trying to pick a fight with us, you know, and you know, that's that type of thing. I mean like you there was there was a definite divide, okay, right. But obviously, I'm mean, like with with brown people, the way apartheid was set up, it's like we didn't feel the impact of racism and apartheid to the extent that our black brothers and sisters did, right? I mean, like we also, I mean, like there where we stayed, we didn't have electricity or running water in our in our house when when we grew up. So I mean, like that's that's the the the, the deprivation that we felt by virtue of being us. You know, was was acute, but um, like we 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 never had. I never went to bed hungry. Before we went to Neisner, uh, we lived in a house that had water and running and electricity. And my dad had a job. We had a car. We had a television in our house. You know, so we were an average lower middle class family, kind of like you know, compared to what our brothers and sisters in 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 Kailich and Langa and Philippi were experiencing. Right. Um, were, were your parents also um, familiar with cannabis or no? Not at all. Not no. at all. My dad. I grew up with my dad saying that you know, Dachis is for scolies, and he drank, and he smoked. You know, I'm mean, like, and later on, I mean, I just the contradiction to me was like, you know, I mean, like, growing up in our society, I remember my my school principal smoked and drank, my preacher smoked and drank. You know, so 
that was my favorite uncle smoked and drink. You know, so you find that growing up, your role models were all people that smoked and drank. So doing that actually just came kind of naturally. You know, so the first thing I started smoking cigarettes, then we started drinking alcohol, and then I got introduced to cannabis. And um, I stopped drinking and smoking soon after I finished matric. And in my first year at university, that's when I linked up with Rastafari and started living the life. What does that mean, to live the life of a Rastafari? What does it involve? It involves separating yourself from worldliness unto godliness. So initially... What inspired us to do that was Numbers chapter 6 in the Bible, the vow of the Nazarite. Not cut your hair, not drink alcohol, not eat anything that comes from the vine tree, not attending funerals. Right? Those were the, the, the more overt uh, practices that you had to follow in order to, to call yourself a Nazarite or a Rastafari. So the Bible played a very important part in, 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 in consolidating and forming my initial world outlook. And that's what influenced uh, my being Rastafari in the initial stages. I love reading. I could be quite comfortable just reading a book, so, you know, so I never craved attention or needed to have lots of friends or whatever that. And wide, reading wide is also, it, it, it broadened my mindset to the extent that I wasn't dogmatic in just that, you know, I just had to read the Bible. From a very early stage, I read the Bhagavad Gita, you know, I read uh, uh, Judaic, the, the Torah, the Quran. You know, I try to broaden my perspective I'm like, in relation to what what is God or what is the universe, you know. And Rastafari provided me with, with the most concrete manner in which I could manifest my worldview as such, you know. So... With, uh, with Peter Tosh, you know, speaking about equal rights, you know, we don't want peace, we'd rather want justice. But it was not only from old holy books and reggae that Gareth drew his inspiration. Through his father, who did a legal matric through correspondence, he developed a passion for the law. Watching TV in the 80s, he was always drawn to those legal shows. I mean, who doesn't want to be a Mike Roth? The universe was starting to conspire and his fate as a lawyer almost certain. Petrocelli was a, was a series, a law series that was, that was uh, on television when the time when I was growing up in the 80s. And, you know, Perry Mason and those type of things, I was always gripped by lawyers. You know, and obviously I'm like the Americanisms that we saw, I'm like that influenced me to some extent. Uh, some people say when I speak, I sound like an American. I think I'm mean, like that's probably from watching too much television. <laughs> but they're right. Uh, yeah, so that inspired me. I'm mean, like to study law. So for me, my mind was set when I went to university. I knew that by being a lawyer, as how I was going to be able first to escape my my uh, the poverty of my background. And that's how I was going to change the world and make a contribution. Where were you studying? At the University of Western Cape. Okay. That's where I did my BURIS LB degree. It was the last years of the 1980s when Gareth began his studying law. It was the time of the state of emergency. 
but it was clear that apartheid was going down. Gareth, on the other hand, was on his way up. He had good grades and his future was looking bright. That was until he got stopped with a stop and arrested. That's coming up after a word from our sponsors. That silence is because we don't have any sponsors. We're bringing you this show for free. But in order to keep it going, we need your help. We have set up a donation page on Supercast that allows you to subscribe to the podcast or donate once off. A lot of time and money has gone into producing this podcast and if you're enjoying it, please consider donating by becoming a member. All profits from this first season will be donated to Fields of Green for All, a cannabis non-profit dedicated to freeing the plant. You'll get access to ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to annoying messages such as this one and a bunch of other cool stuff like the African Gold t-shirt. You'll also go into the prize draw at the end of the season for a chance to win some of the awesome prizes donated by some of the guests of the show. Click on the link in the show notes in your podcast app or go directly to our website at africangold.media. Click on the donate page and join the tribe. And I remember coming in front of the, the, the magistrate at the time. Um, they, they caught me with one stop that I had. And I asked the magistrate, but now you, you ask people to swear on the Bible. But this Bible tells you that it's okay to use cannabis. It's like, you know, and he, the judge was just, the magistrate was just dismissive and it's just said 60 rand or 30 days. He was prepared to send me to jail for 30 days for simply because I had one stop with him. And just for clarity, for those who don't know, how much is a stop? A stop, it, it weighs about two, three grams. Yeah. You know, 60 rand or 30 days. We paid the fine, and but that's how I got my first criminal conviction which then a couple of years later back came back to haunt me in the sense that when I applied to be registered after I finished my degrees, so now you have to apply to, to be registered as a candidate attorney. And you have to, on the application form, they ask whether you have a criminal conviction or not. So my first dilemma was, do I speak the truth or do I lie on this application form? But they would find out, surely, if you, if you lied. That's what I thought, you know, yeah. at the end of the day. I'm mean, like, it's easy enough to check. Kind of like, you know, so I just thought, well, let me be upfront about it. Because this is who I am. But what I do in private for religious and cultural reasons should not have a bearing on my ability to practice my profession. And they were saying, well, the fact that, that you are not apologetic about what it is I've done, you don't acknowledge that it is a crime, that we've, we've decided to declare you not fit and proper to practice law. Shit. So after five years of studies, one year of practical service, one and a half year of practicals, I was told that I cannot be a lawyer because I, I refuse to forswear my being a Rastafari and using cannabis. So when they, how did you find out? Did someone tell you in person or, or how did this... Well, no, the Law Society, I... Well, they write to you or...? They send, me, they, they send me a letter and then they called me and my principal in and to inform me that, well, that is the case. How did it feel when you heard that? Devastating, man. I'm like, fuck, I studied five years. I completed my degrees in the minimum amount of time. I was in the top 10% of students at my university. You know, I was the first person... To, to, to finish university in my family, you know, in my community. I mean, like I'm, I'm the first rusted lawyer in my community in this country. You know, so 
all of that to just show me, yeah, man, the struggle is still continuing. And I immediately told these guys, I'll see you in court. That was the first one. Yeah. Like Prince one. So so you have to go, we had to go to the, to the high court and then to the appeals court and then finally the constitutional court. So the Supreme Court here in Cape Town, all three judges voted against me. Supreme Court of Appeals, all five judges voted against me. And then we went to the Constitutional Court, where you had a split of 6-5. That was the closest margin that the Constitutional Court had at that time. In favor or against? Uh, against. Five judges voted and said that uh, South Africa could make a space for Rastafarians. Six judges said that, nope, we can't have that. That government's duty to protect the vulnerable and the feeble-minded, especially young, triumphed over the right of Rastafarians to use this dangerous drug. But this is all to do with you getting accepted into becoming a lawyer, right? The legal profession, right. So you cannot be a lawyer if you're a practicing Rastafari, is essentially what they say. That's what they essentially said. If you, because an essential part of being a Rastafari is the usage of cannabis. I say usage, not necessarily smoking, but the usage of cannabis. Yeah. So the fact that I wasn't going to bad mouth cannabis counted against me. The fact that I wasn't willing to, to forswear my usage of cannabis counted against me. So you still, to this day, not... I'm not admitted. I'm not admitted. In 2021, you are not admitted admitted as a lawyer. And I finished my law degrees that, I mean, like, in 2023, it would be 30 years since I finished my studies. So I've been in the wilderness for the past 20-odd years, man, not being viewed as a criminal. Highly qualified, but assassinated. They've assassinated my, my, my professional career because nobody is willing to employ me because it would be suicide by association. And that's, but, you know, I mean, like for us, I made peace with that fact in the sense that I knew that I was a pioneer. And obviously, I'm mean, like, if you're a pioneer, then you've got to pave the way. There's an old Zulu proverb that says, one that is first to walk past the, the village of the cannibals usually ends up in the pot. But the reality is, somebody had to muster the courage to make an effort. I was the one that landed in the pots, unfortunately, and... Um, Basically, they, they stifled my career, my ability to provide for my family. I mean, like when I started with all of these things, I was single. But now I've got a wife. I've got two children. I've been with my wife for the past 18 years. And cannabis has been the source of my existence for all of these years. You know, it's like... Um, I'm not afraid, uh, afraid or shy to say that the plant sustained me, you know. I, I did legal advice in the meanwhile. I mean, like in the sense that I can't appear on people's behalf in court, but I normally, what I did, I give advice and then I would draw up legal, pa legal papers for people to hand into court as if they did it themselves. 
Right. Right. And and that's how I survived, you know. But linking people in the cannabis trade, I mean, like that's that's primarily how I've been making my living. You know, now some people will term that as dealing in Dhaka. Well, technically speaking, that's what I did. And I'm not ashamed of that. Had Gareth been admitted as a lawyer, a lot would have been different. But instead of a legal career, he again ended up on the wrong side of the law in 2012. So I grew my own cannabis at my house. And then they came in and they busted me and they came in without a warrant one morning on the 6th of June 2012. They came in and they forced their way into my house on the day that I was supposed to harvest my plants, mate. I mean, like, fuck, that just... I asked myself, man, what lesson is the universe trying to teach me here? You know, and so funny, on the same day that the coppers came and robbed me, the baboons invaded my house. While the coppers are there, mate, I'm standing there, I'm seeing... Is that a fucking baboon that's coming down the stairs there, man? I'm standing in the kitchen, bro. I'm seeing there's coppers in my house. There's baboons in my house. That baboon comes. He flashes his teeth, man. He comes there running to me, man. It's just like I was ripening up a pawpaw. That pawpaw was there like for 10 days, man. And that fucker just came and he took it out of my... <laughs> I'll never forget that, man. <laughs> Baboons and coppers coming to rob me on the same day. <laughs> on the 6th of June, 2012. On the 6th of June, 2012. My wife turned 40 the day before that. You know, and I was jokingly telling her that, you know, tomorrow is going to be the beginning of the rest of your life. On the first day of the rest of her life, she got arrested for the first time in her life. Man. Oh. I told my wife afterwards, you see, I'm mean, like that. So your wife was arrested with you? Yes. And my 22-month-old baby at the time. He spent two hours in a holding cell with us at Simonstown Magistrate's Court. They came and they, you know, if I didn't have my lawyer at the time, he took my 22-year-old baby, my 22-month-old baby. The coppers went and they went in a police van to go fetch my six-year-old daughter at school. You know how cruel and unusual that was. She had to come with a police van to the police station to see her parents in custody. Shit. If my lawyer didn't take my kids, they would have, they would have been put into the, into the system. Luckily, he took them and, and we managed to reach a friend of ours that, that then came through and looked after them, slept at our house till the next day when we came out. So you were, were you granted bail then and there? or how, how No, I, uh, uh, we had to spend the night in jail and we only got bail the next day. Police bail? No, we had to appear in court. court. Okay. And then... The investigating officer comes into court and he says, well, we found 500 grams of high-grade cannabis in your house. That is worth 50,000 rand. Therefore, you are being charged under Schedule 6 
of the Criminal Procedure Act, which means to say that you've got to provide reasons to the court why it is in the interest of justice to release you. I said, but how do you, how do you get to 50K? The law says cannabis is a rand a gram. This cat says, no, 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 no. This stuff is a hundred rand a gram. And the prosecutor just accepted that. He didn't even think. So I was charged under Schedule 6, which means that, man, you could sit for long, I mean, because they normally do that in, 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 in cases of rape and murder. And the law says, but if the value of the drugs that they found was above 50,000, then you charge under a different schedule. Normally, I mean, you're entitled to bail by law. But under Schedule 6, you've got to convince the court that it is in the interest of justice to release you. Luckily for me, I'm an like, I, uh, well, I'm an like, I knew more about the stuff than my lawyer, but at least I could coach him and eventually we managed to get bail. This time, the case against Gareth Prince ended up taking six long years until it was finally concluded in the Constitutional Court in 2018. And this time, Gareth won. Russ Prince, thank you so much for talking to us. Can you just tell me, you were telling me 21 years later and here you are, the highest court in the land. 16 years ago, the Constitutional Court held, a majority of the Constitutional Court held, that Rastafari is not fit and proper to be lawyers in this country. They condemned not only this applicant or this respondent to poverty, but the whole of South Africa, as Justice Albisak said. Today is a vindication for the Rastafari community, for the cannabis community, as well as for myself, in the sense that I am to be given the dignity and the respect that I, as a Rastafari, deserve because I am an indigenous member of this country. Rastafari is an indigenous culture. As the country celebrated what was to become known as the privacy judgment, legalizing the cultivation and consumption of cannabis in private, Gareth and many others like him saw this as little more than a victory in battle while the war still raged on. So I challenged that the, the cannabis laws were in violation of equality, dignity, and freedom, okay. right? But the court ended up developing the right to privacy, okay. which, was, which was not what I argued. I felt that, you know, that was another cop-out on the part of the court in order for them to save face, you see, because acknowledging the equality issue, that would have opened up a Pandora's box from the state's perspective which means to say that you had to, because I'm just saying at the end of the day, how can you have a different regime for alcohol and tobacco and then have another, another regime for cannabis? It, it's, there's, it's illogical, it's irrational, and it's unjust in a South African context. The reason why alcohol and tobacco, I mean, like I always make the example that the first Afrikaner billionaire family made their first billion with drugs, Alcohol and tobacco. The Ruperts became the first billionaire Afrikaner family by selling alcohol and tobacco. By criminalizing cannabis meant that alcohol and tobacco enjoyed an unfair competitive economic advantage. And the only reason why it is multi-billion rand industries in today is because it forms part of the social and cultural practices of white Caucasian Europeans. Yes. Um, I don't know if you know Craig Patterson. 
Yes, the road to master's thesis. And you know, he, this is exactly what he says. He says, he goes into this in quite in detail. The reason you find that, I mean, like there's a, a, a one guy called Professor Martin Chanock, and he wrote a book called Fear, Favor, and Prejudice, The Making of South African Judicial Culture from 1902 to 1936. And he was saying it was only, you see, th there's this notion that, that cannabis, it made white girls lose their chastity and morals. Kind of like, you know, it made you sexually promiscuous. And then these black demons will take advantage of these well-mannered white girls and well-taught mannered uh, girls. And cannabis was that devil's weed that caused that to happen. Yeah. And uh, 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 in Prince 2, you'll also read where, where Justice Sachs speaks about the, the, the interchange between blacks and whites whites giving blacks alcohol and blacks giving whites cannabis and this interaction broke down the prejudices that the apartheid government was trying to put in place you know pass laws and laws that says you can stay here and you can't marry this and you must only walk there and you know cannabis was making it difficult for them to enforce those laws so they just say cannabis you're out cannabis you're out basically and using the drug laws as a very effective measure of control of indigenous people especially the rebellious ones south africa has the dubious distinction of being the first country in the world to agitate for criminal laws against cannabis yes and this was at, this was um late early 1900s right 1910 we brought it to the un or something correct yeah? We were the first country to implore the UN. It was that time it was the League of Nations. Yes. To criminalize cannabis. And Jan Smuts did that because he saw how vicious and determined indigenous freedom fighters were after having used cannabis. That was one of the main reasons. He is on record as saying that we must ensure that the Khoi people never develop the ability to develop an army and South Africa has always been instrumental in, 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 in pushing and upholding this international treaty regime the present government even used that as part of their justification for saying that well I'm mean, gonna guess the reason why we can't open up cannabis because we signed on to the UN and the UN says treaty says this so we but, can't go against it but just a sex very eloquently explained to them in 2002 in his judgment that that is a lie. There is nothing that prevents South Africa from having a progressive cannabis regime because it's what we've been doing in Africa since time immemorial. And there's nothing wrong with that. The notion of equality means that if you allow people to smoke damn cigarettes, then you've got no damn business telling me that people can't be smoking cannabis. That's just it, because it is a customary cultural practice in this place. And the criminal laws against it was made by an illegitimate government. But now since 1996, you've had a position where this black government, this liberation government, continued with the drug laws created by the apartheid government. 
in the last 10 years, they have arrested 2,300,000 people on drug-related charges in this country. That's just in the last 10 years, mate. 2 million, over 300,000 people. And that's according to their police's own stats. They arrest about 200,000 people per year in this country on drug-related charges. And out of that 200,000, you can bet your last rand that about 180,000 of that is cannabis-related. And it's not dealers that they're busting. It's people that are using and possessing. This has costed our government millions and billions of rand, whereas the plant itself could generate billions of rand if it becomes part of our formal economy. Right. But that's never happened. And they have continued to persecute and prosecute predominantly black and brown people for using cannabis, whereas the usage of cannabis as 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 quite evenly spread amongst all the races. But when you look at those incarcerated, eight out of ten are black and brown people. The conversation around cannabis is not a drug conversation in South Africa. It needs to be an economic empowerment discussion within South Africa because cannabis is probably at this stage the most valuable natural resource that we have apart from our people. We've got millions of unemployed people, but we have, from all the countries in the world, South Africa probably have the best conditions for the mass production of cannabis. That mass production of cannabis will kickstart several industries that are labor intensive. The future for cannabis, I'm like for us, is not in export. And that is the fundamental defect in the current National Cannabis Master Plan as well as the Cannabis uh, 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 for Private Purposes Bill. Thanks, Gareth. That's uh, very well said. <laughs> Thanks, and mate. Yeah, I think that's a good... It rounds it up, you know. That's, that's where the future needs to be. Yeah. Exactly, man. Yeah. land race cannabis, man. And then using our conditions and our expertise in order to grow... Yeah. In, in, in the United States, people are paying $15 for a gram of Durban poison cannabis paper. Yeah. $15 to $20 per gram. We want them, when they come to South Africa, to charge them at least three times less than that. You know, They must get three times more for that $20 when they come here and buy cannabis. So what are your, I mean, are you hopeful? Yes, I am. You think, I am. Do you think, I am. Do you think Man, the happen. writing is on? Is it going to happen? It is. You know, I spoke, is. To, I spoke to Tony and he's, he talks about perpetual imminence, you know. For 20 fucking years, this thing has just been, it's coming now. It's, 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 it's now, you know. It, it's always just You know, now. Lester Grinspoon said in 1972, it's just around the corner. It ended up like, and only in 1996. Did he testify for, for California and they managed to get, you know, their, what they currently have? I mean, like California has had a progressive cannabis regime for the past 20 years or yeah. so. Um, but, you know, I mean, in 1972, he felt that it was just around the corner, you know, and look, I mean, they had to wait another 24 years after that. 
I think with us, I mean, it's it's more it's it's written in the signs, mate. And I guess this is this is this is a momentous change that's 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 in the making. I am confident, man. It's going to happen within my lifetime, and that all the sacrifices, you know, that's 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 what still makes me get up in the morning, you know, and and being positive. They haven't robbed me of my joy yet. And that's all for now. Take care. Be safe. And I'll catch you next time for another toke of African Gold. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider donating by becoming an African Gold member and help us bring you the awesome stories of cannabis on the continent. You'll get access to ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me harp on about how we need your money. And there are a bunch of other cool perks too. T-shirts, prizes, that kind of stuff. Check out the link in the show notes or go directly to our website at africangold.media and click on the donate button for details. That was africangold.media.